Better in Bucharest is a podcast about life experiences, leadership lessons, faith and hope. This podcast will show you that you don't have to compromise your values to achieve happiness. Today's podcast is with a friend of mine from the US, Kevin Nanali. Kevin has been to Romania a few times in the last five years speaking to college students and business leaders. Kevin is a retired IBM Global Vice President having spent 33 years with IBM and three years with an international consulting firm. In the years he worked for IBM, Kevin has forged one of the most effective sales and go-to-market teams in North America for WebSphere ever seen. Kevin and his wife Christy have been married for 36 years and have three adult children and one grandson. Now he spends his time as a coach and mentor for young leaders. In this episode, Kevin tells us lessons he learned in 30 years of working at IBM, the importance of friendship and why he has hope in these difficult times when the whole world is affected by COVID-19. Kevin, welcome. It's an honor to have you today with us. Always look forward to our time together. We know each other for quite some time and uh, I was wondering what was it like around your family dinner table? Oh gosh, yeah, I, I grew up in a really interesting family. I had two older sisters and uh, my dad was a military man. He was a Navy pilot. He was a veteran of uh, World War II, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. So my dad was a uh, pretty tough disciplinary guy. My mom was a uh, was an absolutely brilliant woman had degrees from the University of Wisconsin and a master's degree from Northwestern, extremely intellectual. They, they were not a good man. So our dinner tables were lively. Why do you say that? Both very strong-willed people, very wow. opinionated people. It was, uh, yeah, I had an interesting childhood. You said about your dad that he he fought in two wars? Three wars, yes. Three wars. We don't fight any war right now. Uh, so <laughs> I cannot imagine myself, you know, fighting three wars and raising a family. How was it for your father, you know, living in that time? What did you learn from him? Uh, I learned that it was very stressful to be in war. My dad uh, found a lot of solace, unfortunately, in alcohol. You know, war is very stressful. It's something that most of us, you know, my generation can't relate to. Your generation can't relate to it. You know, it's, you know, my kid's age, 20s. We've been a, a world that's been fairly free of you know, large conflicts for a long time. So it was always hard for us growing up to relate to our dad because he was coming out of a period where war was almost uh, just a part of life. So very, very different experience, hard to relate to somebody that went through that. So we, we always tried to provide him a lot of grace, you know, later as we got older and understood more about, you know, the stress he was under and what that led to. Uh, what about your mom? Yeah. So, you know, the marriage is pretty rough because of that. So uh, they did end up getting a divorce. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty rough time. But the the interesting thing that we always are curious about, myself and my two sisters who have grown very close over the years, we spend a lot of time together. Our families are close. We text every day. Is that we all ended up really healthy and and successful, and you know have raised great families. All have strong marriages. So out of that tumultuous, difficult family life growing up, we all were able to create, you know, with a lot of grace from God, really strong families, strong marriages that are, you know, all 30 plus years. Grandkids have come down the road now for us. And so our, our lives have been really fruitful and actually, you know, pretty happy and full of a lot of joy coming out of that. So we always, we always marveled at 
somehow we survived it. What you are describing is the dream of every parent, that his kids will have strong relationships, they will have amazing families, they will have amazing grandchildren. And you say somehow you survived. Why, why do you think you survived? Well, I, I know for me, you know, I, I found God at a very young age. So we would occasionally go to church, you know, Christmas, holidays, that type of thing. But I, I had this sense of God's presence. I, I tell this story a lot of, of remembering sitting in church in fourth grade. And when it was time to bow your head and pray, I looked up. And I just, I just knew God was there. That was my first, you know, inclination in my life that I didn't understand it, but I knew He was there. Wow. And for me, that that started at that age, and then a few years later, you know, I came to know who Jesus was uh, through a lot of friends and the ministry at our church. But uh, yeah, it started for me just understanding that there was more to life than just what I was seeing. This thought was kind of a guidance, uh, was a compass for the rest of your life? Yeah, it really has been. I mean, it was it was that moment of belief, not the belief of a relationship with Jesus at that time, but just this belief that there was a God. That somehow I recognized that, that there was a God, that He was there, He was present, and that that was going to mean something to me later on. It's a moment I, I mean, I was 10 years old and I remember it like it was yesterday. I know you like history books. Why? Yeah. Oh, I love history. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's a bent, you know, it's a uh, just a gift. You know, you, we're all born with certain interests and talents. Some of them are hidden for a long time, but I enjoyed history from the moment I started understanding it. And it was interesting because a lot of guys, especially, really don't enjoy history growing up. They find it boring and difficult. I know my son still just looks at me like I'm from outer space when I talk about history. He just shakes his head. He just has no interest in it. And I just tell him, you know, someday, someday you will. Most people, it's an acquired interest as you get older. But uh, it was just always something I was born with to dig into history, to understand it, to know more about it. I'm fascinated with every every era of these different ages. Um, I still reference a book you gave me, The Fate of Rome, which is an incredible study of climate change and pandemic over the centuries. And, and to think about like that book you gave me and the lessons that I'm learning from that book and applying to the pandemic. I mean, who would have known that you would give me a history book last summer and that book would be critical to my understanding of a global pandemic and probably gives me more insight to it than most people might have because I understand the history of pandemics and, and what it meant to this world. I mean, so history teaches you and it gives you experience and understanding that's beyond just your personal experience, right? All of us have personal experience we can rely on, but to broaden that and understand how people have acted and reacted throughout history gives you gives you a real sense of, of the times, you know, that most of them are repeated. I mean, most people don't understand what happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu. You know, 500 million people were infected and 50 million people died. To understand that history through my readings of World War One and that time and how we became a global world right around that time was when things became truly global for the first time. And and the movement of troops around the world is what spread the, the virus at the time. And, and that's the only real good parallel we have now to how this you know, virus has spread. Then it was troop movement. Now it's global travel through business and tourism and students, right? That's how this thing has spread. It's no one's fault, right? But we live in a global world. So we're all now experiencing something together 
really for the first time. Even then, it was isolated. People didn't understand where it came from or how it got there. You know, they had no understanding. It actually started, the first case was in Fort Riley, Kansas, just west of me, out in the middle of, uh, the middle of nowhere, hmm. right out on the prairie. This one soldier got sick. And it ended up spreading, you know, around the entire country. Now we know how things spread, right? We're able to, to do what we're doing now, right? We're all self-quarantine and using words like social distancing. We understand how to keep ourselves safe, which they didn't then. Well, if we hadn't learned from that history, we'd never know. So that's why I love it. I love to learn. Recently, uh, Kevin, I, I read the, the book Leadership in Difficult Times. It's the story of uh, four former uh, U.S. presidents, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore uh, Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Lyndon B. Johnson. And all of them were great leaders. The stories abound in confusion, hope, failure, and fear. It's a, it's a great book. I know you are a leader, Kevin. You retired as a vice president of a major global company. Is your story similar to theirs? Well, I, I don't think so. Those guys. I mean, in the sense, <laughs> those in, are. I, I mean, in the sense that you experience, you know, in your life, failure, hope, confusion, yeah. fear, as you, you know, became a leader on a different scale, for sure. Of course. I think oh. The way you know, and taking those lessons. Reading and understanding about great leaders is, I, I think that's one of the most important things people can do is, that's why a lot of the history I read is biographical, to really get into people, of how did they start? You know, what was their childhood like? How did they grow into leadership? And I think what you find that would be a good parallel is that there are such a thing as born leaders, but they're very rare. And most people have leadership thrust upon them versus pursuing it. It's You know, I think that's something that really, especially when you're young to think about is there are going to be opportunities in everyone's life to take leadership. You know, that opportunity was presented to me in a lot of different ways in business, right? In ministries I've been involved in. I, I certainly was not the leader type growing up, right? I wasn't the class president or, you know, those were other guys that were far, far ahead of me in terms of their leadership abilities. But over time, you know, God develops skills and traits and character qualities, but it's more of a build than it is something you're born with. And so I think for me, you know, those lessons come hard. So you mentioned a couple of things I think are probably important for today is one is failure. A lot of leadership lessons in our life are taught through failure. And you, you have to experience failure, I think, to build leadership because failure and trials in your life build perseverance And perseverance builds character. I mean, you and I know that from the study of the Bible of different great, great leaders in the Bible, that it comes from trials, which lead to perseverance, which leads to character, which leads to leadership. There are no shortcuts in it. We all come from different starting places based on our family and how we were raised and maybe the educational opportunities that we were afforded. But in the end, failure comes from trials and tribulations. And if you think about today's climate that we're in, We, we are in a global trial. I mean, we know this world is so imperfect. You know, everybody wants things to be fair and right. And the world's never been that way. It's never going to be fair. It's never going to be fit anyone's definition of right, right, or true. It's, it's going to be flawed and imperfect. People make it that way to a large degree. But there are also things that just come, right? I mean, there's weather events and pandemics and economic calamities that come upon different countries and even globally. And so for me, it's been a series of things, right, of failures in business, failures in ministry, 
you know, for this audience, none of you are probably parents yet, but the failures you experience as a parent are, are almost hard to describe sometimes. You just have these moments raising kids where you realize you have no idea what you're supposed to be doing. You, you know you've responded poorly and you're not happy about it. You, you feel badly about it, but you also don't know sometimes how to fix it. You know, with our oldest daughter, who's just an incredible woman now, you know, 29 years old with her first, uh, their first son. and But we always would tell her, you know, you'll have to save all these for your book because she probably could have written a book about all the mistakes we made, right, as parents. For those of you out there, they're the oldest child. Believe me, your parents make all your mistakes with you. That's just something you have to live with as the oldest child. But yeah, I think failure right now is a, is a word that's going to be an important word for a lot of people because a lot of people are losing their job right now or losing their place to live. I mean, there's, there's calamity to use probably not a better word right now than calamity is going to come upon a lot of people. And I think everybody has to be prepared for a certain level of failure in their life right now. And the, the question isn't, are you going to have failure in your life? That's going to happen. The question is, how do you handle it? Does it build character? You know, do you have some resiliency? And where's that resiliency going to come from? Uh, and right? uh, speaking about resiliency, where did you, your resilience, resiliency came from? Well, it started early for me, you know, the coming to faith. I was 15 when I really came to, to faith in Jesus to have a relationship with him. And I really sought strength in that. And the other thing I would say is I, I sought strength in building relationships with other people. You, you know this, and uh, I have a lot of lifelong friends, like really old, you know, 40 and 50 year type friendships uh, built into my life. And we really encourage each other. My wife and I have been doing doing video calls like this with different friends, staying connected. So even now, we recognize the importance of being connected and being in relationship. I mean, that's how we were built. God built us for a relationship, and he didn't build us to be alone or to be loners or to do anything alone. And so for me, it's been about relationships, a relationship with Jesus. But you know what, what that set was an example for me is other relationships in my life should look like that. My relationship with my wife, with my kids, with my friends. When you build strong relationships, it, it, it knits you together and that builds strength, right? There's always strength when, when things are put together as opposed to just individual pieces. And for me, that's where my resiliency comes from. I get a lot of encouragement from people. And I think, I think in today's world, there's not enough people out there speaking encouragement into other people's lives. Well, that's hard to do with a stranger. Like when you and I talk, we try to encourage each other, right? Because we know we're, we're going through tough times. And I think people miss that and, and look for that. Or maybe sometimes they don't even know they need that. But it, it starts with your own relationship with God. I think that's where it all begins. And if you build that relationship, you can build other healthy relationships. The problem we have today is I think a lot of people don't even know how to build a healthy relationship. And so that makes their life difficult, lonely. I mean, I think that's why there's not a lot of joy and happiness out there is there aren't a lot of great relationships that you see in the world. And where you see great relationships, you see people that have a lot of joy in their life. I imagine you, you had uh, a lot of great leaders in your life. Yeah. Did you saw this, this trait? Yeah, I think, I think that's a character quality of a lot of great leaders, of uh, strong relationships. I saw that in, I mean, all the way back to high school when I first experienced small groups, of just getting together with a small group of guys. We had a leader uh, that was a college age guy that 
was an incredible leader and we saw the relationships in his life and we wanted to be like him. And, you know, when I got to college, I saw that. When I got into business, I had a mentor early on in my career, a guy named John Webb, who was a very experienced IBM seller that I worked under. To me, that was like gold. I mean, still to this day, I know John and he long since retired years ago, but uh, what an incredible guy. And I, I constantly tell people, you know, that that set the tone for my entire career. I mean, to mentor under a guy with that level of experience and understanding and have him be willing to teach me and work with me. I saw a lot of other sellers, reps in my office that didn't get an opportunity to be mentored by quality people. I have one friend who I still talk to today. His, the mentor that was assigned to him was a, a really awful guy. He just suffered early in his career from that, of not having a strong guy that he was able to work under. and. He saw that I was working under John and that John would just teach me and coach me constantly. I mean, I just constantly pepper him with questions. And that, that set a tone, you know, for the rest of my career. I mean, I was only 23, 24 years old at the time. And that, that probably was the single biggest influence in my career is having a great mentor that I could look up to, that I trusted, that I knew he was giving me good advice. I mean, I would just soak it in. You had to be a sponge at that age going into your first job. I mean, I look back on that. That's, that's a moment of just thankfulness. Every time I think of John Webb, just brings a smile to my face. And the first thing I think of is I'm just grateful, thankful. You know, that somebody was willing to invest like that. So I think that's a big, when you're young, man, look look for leaders. Look for people that are willing to spend time with you that you know have wisdom, understanding, experience that, that you can learn from. And, you know, it's not selfish to ask for that. It's something that everybody should want and look for. And speaking yeah. about the, the company, I, I read a recent article by Bridget Van Krellingen. I don't know if you heard of Yeah, Bridget. Sure, yeah. I know Bridget. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I used to work for Bridget. And, yeah. and she wrote an article about the transformation of IBM from survival to success. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, uh, now I'm quoting, we had helped put a man on the moon. Um, our researchers won Nobel Prizes. By 1984, uh, the revenue of IBM and market share skyrocketed. She says, less than a decade later, we were toast. In 1993, IBM lost like $8 billion. $8 billion. Yeah, and uh, she said one major business publication labeled IBM as a dinosaur, and another said that your era had passed. But now uh, IBM is doing uh, amazing. Why, why do you think IBM managed to have success again? Because you were well, you I, were you I, were there. I was there. <laughs> yeah, I I can tell you why. Bridget, by the way, was not there. She's a great lady. I love Bridget. Um, but she's looking back at a little history, and, and that's smart for her coming in later to the company to look back and understand the history. So good for Bridget for taking that perspective. Um, yeah, I joined in 1983, and you know IBM was coming out of the mainframe era and was doing really well. And the personal computing era, for those of you that don't know, the personal computer didn't exist yet. Laptops didn't exist. Phones didn't exist. So well, we've come a long way, but uh, personal computing, IBM came out to market with that and did very, very well. But it became very clear that the barriers to entry into the computing world were lowering, right? The massive capital investments were no longer necessary. You could buy parts on the open market and build computers. And so it changed the world. You know, It made computing available outside of big corporate data centers, right? It made computing available to you and I on a personal level. And IBM was not prepared for that at all from, from a leadership standpoint, didn't understand that computing was going to get outside the four walls of business into individuals' hands and, and unleash creativity in a way that this world's never seen before. 
by putting computing power in the hands of you know anyone that wanted it. Uh, and we had a crisis of leadership over that decade from 83 to 93, which is my first decade in the company. Uh, we we're still doing well as a company, but we got to the early 90s and competition was coming from every direction. And we did not have a strong leader in place that were, was prepared for that. He was a guy that was kind of tied to history, tied to the past, didn't have a vision. And what, what changed the fortunes or the trajectory of IBM from literally almost going out of business at that time, borrowing money to pay the dividend and to pay employees, and people like me were getting our resumes ready to go look for new jobs. And a guy came in, the first CEO to come in from outside of IBM in the history of the company, a guy named Lou Gerstner, who was the CEO of American Express, came in and he had a new vision for IBM. The idea at that time was that IBM would be broken apart into different pieces. And his vision was, no, the integration and the power of IBM is in the whole. So honestly, th that leader and his vision saved the entire company. He wrote a great book called Elephants Can't Dance. Who says elephants can't dance? So Lou was the CEO for not a long period of time. I think Lou was only the CEO for like nine or 10 years, but it completely changed the fortunes. Uh, he recognized that software was really the field that was <clears throat> opening up in the world, that this, again, this incredible creativity that was unleashed was to go find things you could build, not hardware-wise, but software-wise, which in today's world, that's exactly where we are. It's about people being, people being able to code and build new things and bring them to market quickly. It takes no capital, takes no money to write code. And Gerstner recognized that. And luckily, I saw that trend and joined the software business in 1999. And that was another moment that really made my career in terms of becoming a senior exec with the company. And but yeah, Lou Gerstner gets the credit for setting the vision. And then obviously IBM was a company full of a lot of really talented, smart people, right? Well-paid people that worked really hard. And he was able to re-harness that into the right direction. So it was never about IBM not having quality people or hardworking people or you know customers that trusted us. It was about unleashing that in the right direction, right? And that, that's what leaders do, right? You're steering a ship. And it's not about, you know, whether you have the right resources or the right talent. It's rarely about that. It's more about setting the direction and going, going in the right direction at the right time. I talk about that of IBM almost going out of business in 1993. I was in a branch office, a young manager, and we laid off 50% of the people in the office. It was one of the worst things I've ever had to do in my career was to tell people, you know, we, we don't have a job for you. It was a horrible, horrible moment in my career as a very young manager. You know, I was 32 years old, really young in, in my career. It probably doesn't sound young to you guys, but 32 in, in your career is still young. Boy, I had to go through a lot of hard lessons about how to treat people with respect. I mean, you it's a moment in time where you really have to make a decision how much you care about people, because the more you care about people, the more it's going to hurt. And you have to be ready for that. Because if you don't, if you don't value the relationship, Doing something difficult, like telling someone they don't have a job, it's not that hard if you don't care. But if you care and you love people, it's very, very painful to go through that. And at the same time, I'm thinking, am I going to have a job? The bullet might be meant for you, too. It didn't work out that way for me, thankfully. But uh, that was a really, really tough time. The parallels now, I mean, I'm reading statistics that say unemployment in the U.S., right? We have the best economy in the world. No economy in the world right now that's even close to what is happening in the U.S. What's happened here in this country in the last four years is better than anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. And yet we'll probably have 30 or 40 million people lose their jobs 
over this pandemic. That's going to be incredibly painful, but you know, God's prepared me. I've been through this before. You know, I, I know what that looks like and I'll be prepared to help people. You know, part of, part of what I do in, in my retirement years here is help people find new jobs. I mean, just in the last couple of years, I've helped probably 25 or 30 people get to a new career. I was on the phone yesterday with a guy that just started his new job that I worked him through how to get there. And right. I'm prepared to help people during this time because I, what I went through in 1993, that's a long time ago, but believe me, I remember that you never forget going through a time like that of half the people in the room are going to lose their job. That's not a fun thing to go through. Now, because of that lesson, you can help other people. You can do two things. One, you can say, here's what's going to happen when you lose your job and you can start to walk them through. But then you can also say, Hey, there's hope here. Here's what's going to happen. It's going to be bad, but eventually you're going to get a new job. And here are the steps you're going to need to take to recover, right? To recover, you know, where you live and how you feed your family and how you go about getting the new job skills you're going to need for the next decade of life. I mean, there are a lot of lessons here that people are going to take because economy is going to change around the world. I mean, that's one thing. You know, my last three years, you know, I retired July of 19, but those last three years, I spent time with clients on digital transformation, right? And that's, I mean, this whole world now is going to transform. If you think about how isolated we are, right, our only connection is just like I have right now, it's digital. It's the only way we can connect with the outside world right now is through digital channels, right? Our church services are online. We did, we did game night Saturday night with our kids who live in Chicago and Dallas, right? We did a Zoom call and an online game, right? Everything we did was digital. So this digital transformation that's been taking place in our society and in business is going to get down to a very personal level, kind of like personal computing did in the 80s. And just like the internet did in the 2000s, just like mobile devices did, right? We all live, we all live on our mobile device now, right? That happened in 2008. So We're a dozen years into mobility. This is going to be that next wave. And what it means is jobs are going to change and you have to be ready for that. Well, I can, I can talk to people and help people work on what are the skills necessary. So, you know, God's put me in that position, but yeah, we're going to go, this is going to be a really difficult time, not just what we're going through now, but the transformation and the recovery that's going to take place is going to be very difficult for people. So you said, you know, the reality is going to be bad, Yeah, but there's also hope, right? There is also hope. So how can college students or young professionals can prepare? Or can, what are some of the skills they can uh, build so they will be more prepared for this major okay. shift that is going to happen? So I, I always divide skills into two. So the, there's what I call soft skills and then hard skills. So the first thing everybody can do is work on their soft skills, right? And that is, how do you relate to people? How do you handle the emotions of success or failure? Do you do things like, do you have a smile on your face? Do you, do you communicate confidence to people? Are you polite? Do you show up for work on time? You know, do you help other people in need? You know, these are all the soft skills that everybody can acknowledge they need to work on and get better at, right? At 59, I need to improve my soft skills every day, every day. Why? And then there's hard. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you want every day and every week and every year to be successful and enjoy life, you know, work on those soft skills. Those are the skills that make people attractive to one another. And then this, the second half of that is the hard skills, right? And that is, are you acquiring technical skills, 
writing skills, um, you know, all, all the things that are required about a, about a different job. I saw a survey the other day, though, and still employers, when you ask them what they're looking for, they almost always list out all the soft skills. Do you get along with others? Do you work hard? Those kinds of things. That's what they really look for. And then at the very bottom of the survey were all the hard skills. Do you have experience in this job field? Have you been trained in these new skills? Right. So I, I would think of it that way. What are you doing to improve your soft skills? And what are you doing to improve your hard skills in this day and age? Because you have to be ready, I think, when we come out of this for a very different world than than what we're in right now. Thank you, Kevin. Do you have like a final word? You know, the floor is yours. Yeah, I do. You know, the, the thing I've been thinking about, a couple of words have come to mind over the last week. The, the first one is fear, that I think there's a lot of fear in people's minds and in people's hearts right now. And I thought about, you know, again, back to kind of our foundation, which is the Bible and our relationship with God. And over a hundred times in the Bible, God says, be not afraid, do not fear, fear not, right? Another way he says that says that is be anxious for nothing, right? So fear and anxiety, I think is the system is completely full of fear and anxiety right now. And you have to face that in your own life. Fear, worry, and anxiety, those are the enemy right now, I think, for most of us. You have to talk to other people about that. What are you afraid about? What do you worry about? And how are you going to address that in your own life? I think that's, that's for me, the really, really big issue that people are probably not choosing to deal with right now. They're looking more at the external part of this, the pandemic, how government's reacting, you know, how businesses are reacting. It's probably more about us now than, than we realize. So for me, th those are the words that have come to mind, this fear and anxiety. And then the word you, you referenced that goes on top of that is hope, is where's your hope? Where does your hope lie in all this? You and I know where our hope lies, right? That we, we've got a God who loves us, that cares about us, who knows us, knows our fears, knows our anxieties. And we take a lot of, a lot of solace in that. It helps us deal with those worries and those anxieties. So I, that's probably the thing I would leave people with is don't be afraid. In saying that, it's easy to say that, but the way you get through that, the way you move past fear is to find your hope. And if we find our hope, we're, we're all going to be okay. Better in Bucharest, it's a podcast about life experiences, leadership lessons, faith, and hope. This podcast will show you that you don't have to compromise your values to achieve happiness. 